Uh, I wonder how you would complete the sentence, the hard work of the Christian life is, what would you say? What is the hard work of the Christian life? Maybe there's a number of ways we could answer that. Um, But a chap called Dane Ortland, who's written an excellent book called Gentle and Lowly, he reckons that the hard work of the Christian life is letting our natural assumptions about who God is fall away and be slowly replaced with God's insistence on who he is. He reckons the hard work of the Christian life is our struggle to let God tell us what he is like and receive that. Uh, the England Women's Six Nations Rugby Tournament is underway. I say the England Women's because there's Six Nations, but England women are playing in it. Um, last week they beat Scotland, uh, which was good to see. Um, uh, but their, um, their winger, Jess Breach, I've got her name right down, she, she scored this great try against Scotland. And there was a kind of fairly dodgy crossfield kick that she caught. She had a lot of work to do. She beat the first defender. She came up. Uh, the Scottish fullback was coming very fast upon her, but she deftly swerved past to score the try. And the commentator said um, that both these players, Jess Breach and the Scottish fullback, play for the same club. They train together week in, week out. And so the commentator says Jess Breach knows all of her moves. And so she knows how to get by. Now, it's saying that this, um, this rugby player doesn't just know how to beat defenders in general. She knows how to beat this defender in particular. She knows all about her moves. And I wonder then, do we know about the moves of God? Do we know about how our God acts and responds and deals with us in all the various situations of life? Do do we know what his moves will be when we fall on our faces? Do we know what God's moves will be when we are creaking under pressure? Do we know what his moves will be when the sun's shining down and everything's going well? Do we know what his moves will be when it seems that everything we touch turns to dust? Do we know the moves of God? Well, we're continuing our way through Matthew's gospel. And what has happened uh, is that Jesus has ridden into Jerusalem, presenting himself as the king. Uh, the religious leaders didn't like that. They didn't like the influence that he had. They didn't like Jesus, so they start to make plans to arrest him. And Jesus tells them three stories to show that they need to turn from their sin. And they're not persuaded by that. So they respond with three questions, uh, trying to dilute the popularity Jesus has with the crowds. And that backfires because Jesus' answers leave them speechless. And we pick this all up. It's all happening in the temple. We pick it up in Matthew 23. Uh, Look with me at the beginning of the chapter. It tells us, then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, and he talks about the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. And focuses on their hypocrisy. That's the theme of this chapter, the hypocrisy. Uh, When you say one thing and you do something else. Hypocrisy, like an actor who who plays a part. But this acting is all through life, pretending to be what you are not. And what happens in this chapter is that Jesus takes hypocrisy, he slams it on the table, he pulls out a scalpel and he cuts it up and he shows us what hypocrisy is all about. This is a dissection of, of hypocrisy. It comes in two parts. The first part in verses 1 to 12. Verses 1 to 12, Jesus is speaking to the crowds and his disciples about the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. And he cuts out in this dissection three aspects of their hypocrisy. First of all, he shows this top layer is hypocrisy is where your doing is disconnected from your saying. 
Jesus says the religious leaders teach the things of God, so you must listen. But he says, do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. It's a very toxic disconnection. And when somebody, especially someone with spiritual authority, teaches one thing and then doesn't apply it to themselves. When, when what you see and you hear in public is different to how the person is in private, that is a toxic thing. Toxic because of what it is that drives words and deeds apart. Now, why would someone not practice what they preach? Well, isn't it because they think that somehow they are exempt from it? They think that somehow what they teach is not inclusive of themselves. Why would that be? Well, for these Pharisees, it's because they think they are better than other people. The second thing Jesus touches on is how these Pharisees in their hypocrisy are using rather than serving others. You know, Jesus gets very quickly to the harm caused to others. Verse 4, they tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. And these Pharisees produce this elaborate um, uh, system of rules which need to be followed, and they are merciless in how they apply the rules to ordinary working people. Why would they do it? Verse 5, Jesus says, everything they do is done for people to see. That's why they do it. Now, the Pharisees want other people to think that they are better, they are more godly than the others, and so they do things like they make their phylacteries wide and the tassels of their garments long. Now, that basically saying they dress in a way that says to others, we are better than you. Now, the rules that they impose aren't rules to serve, but to make the people think how superior the Pharisees are. Because what it comes down to, verse 6, is that they love to be loved. Verse 6, they love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi by others. They love it. They love to be loved. That is, they love the praises of people. They crave it when others think they are more significant. And it's hypocrisy. And their outward show of piety was really just a way of using people as tools to boost their own egos. They used other people to make them feel better about themselves. I wonder if that's how we use other people. We all love to be loved, don't we? We all love to be loved. The, the third thing Jesus touches on there is that humility wins. He says to the crowd and to his disciples in verse 8, Not you. The Pharisees take grand titles. They want to elevate themselves, feel that they are above other people. But Jesus says, not for you. Don't be called rabbi. You're not above one another. You are brothers. Don't call someone father because God is your father in heaven. You are all together under him as a family. Don't be called instructors because Christ is your instructor. And then he gives the great principle, verse 11. The greatest among you will be your servant. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. See what Jesus does. He puts hypocrisy on the table. He begins his dissection. And his conclusion is hypocrisy does not work. If you exalt yourself, if you try to puff yourself up, you will be brought down. You can't get yourself up. You can't do it. You can't do it for yourself. It must be done to you. Those who are exalted aren't those who have exalted themselves, but those who humble themselves. 
Now, it doesn't end here, though. Jesus hasn't finished. He's really just only got started. And in verse 13, he dissects a bit more. He cuts a bit further. He goes deeper into the fabric of hypocrisy. You see, in, in verse 12, he said, those who exalt themselves will be humbled. Verse 13 to 36, Jesus unpacks that with what is a devastating critique of the Pharisee. He turns directly to them in verse 13, no longer just speaking to the crowd and disciples, but he speaks directly, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, does not hold back. Seven times in this speech, he says, woe to you. He calls the Pharisees hypocrites, blind guides, blind fools, snakes, brood of vipers. And in verse 33, his conclusion is devastating. How will you escape being condemned to hell? What do we make of it? We can't just dismiss this as a rant. This sevenfold declaration of woe is a judge's verdict. You see, what has just happened at the end of the last chapter, Jesus has shown the Pharisees from the Old Testament that he, Jesus, is the Messiah. And he, Jesus, the Messiah, will sit on a throne of judgment. And now in chapter 23, Jesus, the Messiah, proclaims his judge's verdict on the Pharisees. Woe to you, he says. You've been weighed. You've been found guilty of great crime. This second dissection of hypocrisy gets right into the guts of it. The woes come in pairs. The first two, they are depriving others of salvation. They, they love, the Pharisees love the praise of people. So they exalt themselves and it comes at a great cost. A great cost. See, Jesus has come into the world proclaiming the kingdom of heaven, saying that through repentance of your sin and faith in the Christ, there's a way to belong to the inbreaking of heaven's dominion on earth. But the Pharisees weren't interested in that. That wouldn't exalt them. That wouldn't make them feel good about themselves. So they are not interested in it. And in fact, they're so intent on squeezing praise for themselves, they are shutting the door of the kingdom to others. And it says that in their love for themselves, they would go far and wide to win a single convert. And then when it happened, this convert that they create to praise themselves would out-Pharisee the Pharisees. And any hope of actual salvation would be destroyed, put on a course to destruction. Now, the guts of hypocrisy is an ugly business. The second two woes, they are ruling over God's word. They want to master God's word rather than be mastered by it. You see, the Pharisees love the praise of people, so they exalt themselves. So when it comes to the Bible, they use the Bible to draw attention to themselves and end up losing all perspective as they do it. Jesus gives two examples. First of all, the the Pharisees had this complex system of oath-taking, making promises. And they said there's, there's particular words you need to use when you make a promise. And the words you use will determine whether it is valid or not. So, so if somebody swears by the temple, if they make a promise by the temple, the Pharisees, that, that doesn't, you don't need to be held to that. But well, an example of that, maybe if they say, um, I swear by the temple to repay this money. The Pharisees said, you don't need to be held to that. That doesn't count. But if you say, I swear by the gold of the temple, ah, that's, that's the words that really count. Bonkers. But they're serious. Jesus says, you're blind fools. You've taken so much care over the wording of the promise, but you've been utterly careless about God. 
And he states the obvious. Jesus states the obvious. You can't make a distinction between the temple and the gold of the temple. You can't make a distinction between the altar and what is on the altar. But as Jesus points out the obvious, he he draws attention to what really matters. Verse 21. Anyone who swears by the temple swears by it and the one who dwells in it. Now where's God in their thinking? Verse 22. Anyone who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on it. And incidentally, the one who sits on the throne is the Messiah. That's what Jesus has just told them in Matthew 22. They've got no interest in recognizing him. The second example Jesus draws out is tithing. They were meticulous in how they tithed. Again, they had elaborate rules about what you needed to give 10% of. They went around the garden and they selected which plants you needed to give 10% of. And Jesus says, fine, if you want to do that, that's fine. But what about the more important stuff? Justice and mercy and faithfulness. What are you doing about those? You strain out a gnat, but you swallow a camel. They've got so caught up in little tiny details, they've missed the main thing. They make much of the little and little of the much. They're using God's word to serve their own ends. They're using God's word to draw praise to themselves. Rather than humbly seeking to submit themselves to what God has said. So they give out this pretense of being wonderfully godly, wonderfully religious, but they've lost all perspective and they are blind guides. The next two woes are all about appearance over substance. Again, Jesus uses two examples. The first is he compares the Pharisees to dirty dishes. He said, imagine you've got a dirty bowl and it's full of rotten, moldy, maggot-infested food. And the Pharisees will take that bowl and they will clean the outside and it will be sparkling and pristine, but they will do nothing about the rot within. The second example, Jesus compares them to whitewashed tombs. A tomb that's full of bones, there's nothing clean in it. But on the outside, it can be painted to look very nice. But Jesus says, look, you are full of greed, you're full of self-indulgence, you're full of hypocrisy, you're full of wickedness. The Pharisees love the praise of people, so they exalt themselves. But you can't face the reality of sin within and at the same time exalt yourself. But they don't want to know about it. They don't want to deal with their sin. All they want to do is to present a nice appearance. And they were known for it. They were known as the most religious, the most holy people. But Jesus says it's a pretense. It's a sham. It's empty. They've got no concern for real purity. All they want is to give an appearance to get approval as they exalt them. And so verse 29 brings us to the final woe, the summary. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourself that you are descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Go ahead then and complete what your ancestors started. See the irony of this conversation. These Pharisees piously honor the tombs of the prophets and they say if we had been around in their time we would never have done that we would never have killed them and at the same time they are scheming to kill Jesus they're not any different they're cut from the same mold in fact Jesus says they are filling up this great pile of sin that has been building for generations and they will add on the last bit before God says that's enough verse 33 you snakes 
you brood of vipers. How will you escape being condemned to hell? How? How will they escape when they are so caught up with their own self-importance? They will stop at nothing. How will they escape? They will not be stopped. Verse 34, Jesus says, therefore, I'm sending you. I am sending to you. Listen to the authority of Jesus. I am sending you prophets and sages and teachers. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. They hate correction. When these people will come and tell them they need to sort out the sin within, they they will not have their sin exposed, so much so that they will kill those who are sent to them. And Jesus, the judge, concludes his verdict, verse 35. So upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel at the beginning of the Old Testament to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, at the end of the Old Testament, whom you murder between the temple and the altar. Truly, I tell you, all this will come upon this generation. His final condemnation includes the whole generation. The Pharisees, he's saying in all this, are not typical are not exceptional, sorry, they are typical. Those who exalt themselves will be humbled. You see how this dissection of hypocrisy shows this. Those who exalt themselves by harming others, by using religion to deny God's true place, by ignoring the sin within and allowing it to fester and rot in their souls and then finally refusing to be corrected with a violent silence of the challenge. The Pharisees exalt themselves and Jesus, the Messiah King, declares, Woe to you! You will not escape condemnation. And at this point we take a pause. What do we make of all that? Now, What what do we think about this judge's verdict? And what do we feel? What do we feel in our hearts toward these Pharisees and those like them? And what do we feel about those who abuse and mistreat others? And what do we feel about those who manipulate the system to better themselves? And what do we feel about those who pretend to be better than everyone else when inside they are hiding all kinds of wickedness? You see, now we come to the hard work of the Christian life. Do we know God's moves? You see, the the real question is not whether we know our own reaction to the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, but what is Christ's reaction? And we've seen some of his reaction, but the picture takes a startling turn in verse 37. Verse 37, Jesus says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often... I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus has declared this devastating condemnation on those who exalt themselves. No, the the beat of Matthew 23 has been war and judgment. And then immediately, the concluding point that Jesus makes, the end of this speech, Jesus reveals his immense compassion. This compassion of Christ is directed to the most wicked. 
Do you see that? Do you see what he longs for? Who is it who he longs for? The longing of Christ is towards the very same he has just declared. Woe! Those who kill the prophets. He yearns for them. So what, what is this that we see at the end of this chapter? Now get into our minds all, all that has just been said about these hypocritical, self-seeking murderers. And then look at the kind of compassion Christ has for them. The compassion of Christ is tender protection. How often, he says, I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wing. But what is that? This isn't a a, a kind of cozy scene in the safety of a barn. This is what happens when a predator comes. What a hen does and her chicks are there and they're in danger. An Italian botanist in the 16th century observed how at the first sign of danger, a mother hen will immediately gather her chicks. And he writes, under the shadow of their wings and with this covering, they put up such a very fierce defense, striking fear into their opponent in the midst of a frightful clamor using both wings and beak. They would rather die for their chicks than seek safety in flight. That's the image Jesus is giving. That fierce maternal protection to rather die than see her young come to harm. That is how Christ describes his longing. For whom? For those who kill the prophet. For those who have again and again and again and again refused to hear the word of the Lord. That's why Christ is standing in Jerusalem. This is the whole eternal counsel of God. This is why the Son of God became the Son of Man. It's why he came to save his people from their sins. And he didn't come into the world for the righteous. And he didn't come for the perfect and the pure. He came for sinners. And not just little sinners, but great big sinners. He came for those who are whitewashed tombs, who pretended that they've got everything sorted, but inside they are rotten and wicked, more than they dare to admit, more than they could ever realize. And so Jesus came and journeyed every moment of his life towards Jerusalem. And he set his face like flint because he longed for his people. Because all the love of God from all eternity yearned for his people. And they were under threat. And their sin had put them on a straight path to destruction. But like that mother hen, he would rather die than see them harmed. So he stood in Jerusalem. And in a few days, he would hang in Jerusalem. And he did it all for love. Great compassion for you. How often I have longed, said Jesus. And this compassion of Christ, however fierce and intense and power-filled it is, it is not forced. See that? He says, I have longed for you, and you were not willing. Christ was willing. Christ was willing all the way he was willing, all the way to the cross he was willing. All the sin he's just described, he was willing to be named under that sin. The hell that he has just spoken of, he was willing to endure that hell. That this judge was willing to bear the condemnation that he's just issued. This king was willing to come down from his throne and stand in the dock and go to the execution. Christ was willing, all the way willing. But they were not willing. And his compassion is not forced. Not forced. 
but the compassion of Christ is found when he is received as the Messiah. So he says in verse 38, look, your house is left to you desolate. Spoken in the temple, the glory of the Lord would depart, the end has come. But Jesus has said in verse 12, those who exalt themselves will be humbled. Now that those who are not willing to receive the compassion of Christ, the door cannot be opened, the end will come. But verse 12 goes on and says, those who humble themselves will be exalted. And so Christ ends by saying, I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He's quoting from the Hosanna psalm, the Lord save us psalm that we saw as he entered into Jerusalem. It's what the crowds were shouting out. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The name of the Lord is the one who comes in the character of the Lord. The one who brings the attributes of God to bear. The name of the Lord. What is the name of the Lord? In Exodus 33, he proclaims it. The name of the Lord is the compassionate and the gracious God. Slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness. Blessed is he, says the psalm, the one who comes in the roaring compassion of God to save his people. And Jesus says at the end of this speech, those who recognize that he is that Messiah, they recognize that he's come to save and they celebrate his coming, they will see him. Now the compassion of Christ holds out a saving invitation to those who continue to refuse him. And even now, as he holds it out, even now, if they trust him, even now, he would gather them into his protection. Even now, if only they would be willing, they would humble themselves, he would exalt them. You see, when Jesus puts hypocrisy on the table and he pulls out his scalpel and he dissects it, and we see what hypocrisy is all about, but when he cuts through to the core of it, what pours out in the end is the compassion of God. And so we come to the hard work of the Christian life. Do we know the moves of God? Now let's not let this passage stand at arm's length, but put ourselves in the middle. Do you know the moves of God? Not so you can run around him, but so you can run right into him. Full contact and get caught into the rich depths of his compassion. Do you know how Christ responds to proud hypocrites? Do you know how Christ responds to foolish deceivers, to God-haters who destroy themselves and others, to those who are self-obsessed and far too self-important? How Christ responds is he yearns for them. He aches to gather them into his own protection. That's what we see in Matthew 23. So would you ask yourself, if this is the compassion of Christ, then with him What can I lack? Are you willing to come under his care? There's the rub, isn't it? That those who humble themselves will be exalted. Those who come under his care. Those who allow him to put his wings of protection over them. Those who are not willing to go it alone. Those who are not willing to stand by themselves. The humble heart says to the Lord, Lord, don't leave me. The humble heart says, Lord, don't give me what I want. The humble heart says, Lord, don't let me fight my own battles. Don't leave me in my sin. And the compassion of Christ leaps for you. 
Are you willing? Are you willing to dump the ruin and wreckage of your life into his lap? Because he longs for you. If this is the compassion of Christ, then with him, what can you lack? And what need do you have to provide for yourself? What need do you have to be upheld by the approval of mere mortals? That if this is the compassion of Christ, then we can honestly consider our sin. We can look at all our secret wickedness. And as we look at it, we can never fear that it will separate us from the love of Christ. Are you willing? Now, if we're not willing, even then he longs. Even then he holds his appeal to us. Even when we're not willing, he says, call and be saved. And if we lack willingness, we can call on him to provide what we lack because out of this ocean of compassion, he will give willingness to those who would be made willing. So as we come to this week ahead, let's remember how our God moves. When you are weary, how does Christ respond to the weary? He's moved with compassion. When you're dry and empty, how does Christ respond? Moved with compassion. And when you're sinful and shame-filled and fallen again, how does Christ respond? He aches and he yearns and he longs to gather you into the fullness of his compassion. And under that fierce protection, under the shelter of his wings, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Father in heaven, please make us see the compassion of Christ and willing to come under his protection. Amen.